0: Why do we worry? Think about some things for a moment that you tend to worry about. I'm not going to ask you to say them out loud. Why do we worry? Sometimes we see crime rising in our area, or we see political systems falling apart. Why? Why do we worry about that? We see the economy struggling, prices rise, common sense seems to be vanishing. Why? Why do we worry about that? We watch our kids make choices that we're not sure we can protect them from. We see loved ones get sick and go through difficult physical issues. Why do we worry about that? These are difficult things. I want to be careful. I'm not trying to insinuate that we should be uncaring or unfeeling about these things, but I want to hone in on that idea of worry. What is it that, that crosses over into worrying about these things? I believe that worry comes from having a sense of not having control. And and to broaden it, a sense of things being out of control. Not just our control, but of any control. It's all falling apart. Nothing's going to work out. No good thing is going to come. And we worry. I believe that deep-seated and constant worry is a sign that we are looking in the wrong direction. And so I've called this sermon, Look Up. We need to hold on to something greater than the situations in our life, the situations in our family, as important as those things are. I want to be careful. I'm not saying ignore them. I'm not saying just be happy. It's fine. It's fine. Sometimes it's not fine. But we need something in those moments of it not being fine and something in all the other moments too to hold on to that's bigger than that. Something that can give us confidence that someone is in control, that someone does have a plan, and that that someone is good and able to carry out his plan. We've been walking through Scripture in this Focal Point sermon series. We started in Genesis. We're looking at various major themes of Scripture. We looked at creation, the calling of Abraham. Uh, we looked at the Jewish people, of the Old Testament, the tabernacle and temple. And we looked at these major themes of though we are in rebellion against God because of our sin, rather than just letting us go and saying, well, that didn't work out. I'm, I'm just not going to care about you anymore. God reached into human history and he said, You're mine. I'm going to have a relationship with you. And he worked through Abraham and his offspring in the Old Testament, but they still struggled with their sin. And we learned all these themes about God who is holy and wants to be with us. We sung that in the only a holy God that that sin had to be dealt with. And the sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed to a greater sacrifice that was necessary. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at Jesus in the New Testament and the Gospels and the major themes of his life. We looked at his birth on Christmas. We've looked at who he is as the word made flesh. We looked last week at the crucifixion and the resurrection. And and we're about to move on to the rest of the New Testament. We're about to get to the church and, and kind of things that are extremely relevant to us today, but before we get to that, it's all relevant to us today, but before we get to that, there's one more thing about Jesus we need to talk about before we move on, because I think it shapes, it must shape what we're holding on to as our hope today as followers of Jesus Christ, and what I believe is a great hope to those that are looking for hope and not finding it. And so today I want to talk about looking up and I want to go back. I ended the last week with the resurrection. We talked about the significance of the resurrection, but I want to talk about what happened after the resurrection now, because Jesus shows up and appears to various people and they see him. And he wants them to look. He, he offers them. He says, look at my hands. Look at my side. It's me. It's really me in the flesh. Jesus wanted people to know that he had risen from the dead. For 40 days, he interacts with people. In John uh, chapter 20 and in Luke 24, he appears to these women that were right there at the tomb when he rose from the dead. And that story always blows me away because if you know the culture of the day, I want to be careful. Listen, don't, don't tune me out for a second. It, according to the culture of that day, it was useless for him to appear to those women because the culture would not have respected them as witnesses. The culture of the day. Yet Jesus intentionally, I believe, I don't think this was a manner or a matter of the women just being in the right place at the right time. I believe Jesus chose to appear to the women And here's the really cool thing, as I've studied this more and more, if you were to try to make up a story, people say this all the time, oh, the disciples just made this up, you would never in that culture put the first appearance to women, never. That to me tells me that among many other things, there is an authenticity to this. The only reason they would have recorded that is because that's what actually happened. If we go on, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just briefly, Paul lays out some things that he taught the Corinthian church, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he makes a list. And that he appeared appeared to Cephas, this is another name for Peter, and then to the 12. And then he goes on in verses 6 and 7. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom were still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And then in verse 8, he says, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. I love the way Chuck Colson treats this. Chuck Colson was part of the Watergate scandal, the inner circle with Richard Nixon. And he writes, I think it's in his book, Loving God, he tells his testimony. And one of the things he talks about is how he knows the resurrection is true. He came to know Jesus in prison. He knows the resurrection is true because he said those of us in Nixon's inner circle could not keep the scandal together, could not keep the secret together for more than a few weeks. He said there is no way all of those witnesses could have had the same story for not just weeks, but months and years, even to their own death. That's a very unique perspective. Jesus Christ rose from the dead And that fact is verifiable by eyewitnesses. And the reason I want to touch on this before we move on to the main topic is that this is the idea of Jesus' resurrection and everything that we're going to talk about afterward. This is not just good spiritual truth. It's not just good spiritual ideas. These are verifiable facts that happened in history. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born in a manger, died on a cross, rose from the dead, was witnessed by many people, and then something amazing happened. And that's where I want to spend the bulk of our time here. Jesus rose from the dead. And then In front of his disciples, they see him raise up into heaven. And I have to admit, as a Christian teacher, I don't often spend a lot of time on the ascension of Jesus, that he rose up into heaven. But I think it's important to understand the impact this had on those early believers and what it means that he rose up into heaven and what he's been doing ever since. And so that's what I want to look at now. The gospel writer, Luke, in case you don't know, he wrote the the New Testament books of Luke. That one's pretty obvious. But and Acts, he wrote Luke and Acts as kind of a a two-part of one letter that he was sending to someone to tell them about Jesus Christ. And what's fascinating is how he ends Luke and begins Acts. And he ends Luke and he begins Acts with much of the same idea. If you look at Luke chapter 24, Verses 50 to 53, he says this, When he, Jesus, had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Then if we flip over to Acts chapter 1, he does some introductory things, and then in verses 9 through 11, he repeats what he just said. After he said this, Jesus, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men, dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So they witness Jesus being taken up into heaven. And then if we fast forward to Acts chapter 2, preach, uh, Peter rather is preaching to a crowd of people in Jerusalem. The same crowd of people that probably would have been around when Jesus was crucified. And he talks about the death and the resurrection. He ties it all into the Old Testament. And then at the end of the sermon, he says this in verses 33 to 36, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven. And yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He he refers to the ascension of Jesus. He says, we have seen him taken up. He is with the Father. And he says, this is God's approval that Jesus did what he said he was going to do, that he has gone back into the presence of the throne room of heaven. Understand what Peter's saying the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven is part of the proof of who Jesus is. And it's part of the proof that he really is their king. what's interesting is how they respond to this. They are cut to the heart. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This man they're thinking that we thought was just another teacher that he was leading us astray. Wait a minute, he was risen from the dead and now he has been taken up into heaven and he is reigning in the throne room of heaven. This guy is more than we thought he was. He is truly the Messiah. And Peter emphasizes something that's going to walk throughout all of Acts and all the rest of the New Testament. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, right now, Moment by moment, is reigning on high in the throne room of heaven. Over every situation that we look at in this world, and we go, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Jesus is reigning on his throne. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. This is so cool. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. In Ephesians chapter 1, 18 through 23, listen to what Paul prays for the Ephesian believers. Listen to what he wants them to know. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Do you see what Paul's saying to the Christians? He's saying, I want you Christians to look at your world through the lens of the hope of Jesus Christ, knowing that he is reigning over all these things you worry about. Think about in their time. Rome had taken over. Leadership of Rome was a mess. It was beginning to be in decline even now. There was beginning to be a tide that was turning against Christians. Persecution was breaking out. Some of these people he's writing to would lose their lives. And yet he says, Jesus is still on his throne. And the same power that rose him from the dead is the same power that took him up to the throne is the same power that is ruling and reigning over every other power we can possibly imagine. And the equation goes like this. Jesus is greater than anything, than everything. And Paul wants the church to know that, that their Savior is, is reigning on high forever and ever. The greatest cure for worry is to know, to trust, to remind ourselves Jesus Christ, the Son of God, reigns on high and has all power and all authority over all things. Christ's current reign over all things doesn't just... It's not just there to be this little pick-me-up during the day. Oh, don't worry, everything will work out. Jesus Christ is just reigning on the throne. It's to remind us God has a plan, and there is nothing in all creation that can undermine that plan. Now, yes, steps along the way. Steps along the way are tough. I shared at the funeral, Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's called the Shepherd Psalm. It's all about following the shepherd. And the psalmist writes, Even when I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, and I remember one day thinking, wait a minute, if he's following his shepherd, but he's in the valley of the shadow of death, how did he get there? His shepherd led him there. Following Jesus does not mean everything's fine and it's okay and everything's gonna be easy. But it does mean that there is one who has a plan, who reigns on high, who is greater than everything else. We need to be careful as Christians. We need to be careful that we take our theology, our beliefs, and we put them into practice. Because when we say we believe in Jesus reigning on high, and then we wring our hands over every political situation, economic situation, cultural situation, what we are saying in our Actions is different than what we are proclaiming in our theology. If we are proclaiming Jesus as king, we can look at situations and say, yes, I don't like this. I don't think it's right. I'm concerned about where it's going. But we also have to have the statement and the idea of faith in that my Jesus is still on his throne. And it's also to remember, whatever this situation is, the solution is not a candidate. It's not a political statement. It's not a movement. The solution is Jesus Christ. It is sad sometimes how often as Christians we confess Jesus on Sunday mornings. And then in our actions and our attitudes, we are denying him throughout the week. Jesus Christ currently, at this moment, reigns on the throne forever and ever. Nothing that is happening is outside of His control. He has a plan. He instituted it in the beginning. We've been tracing that plan through all of the Old Testament and into the New. And He reigns on His throne, capable, powerful, and is carrying out that plan even now. This idea of Christ who died and rose again and is now eternally reigning on high, this becomes the backbone of the church. It's not just go into the world and be good people, try really hard, fix up your life so that you're better spiritual, nice people. It's go live in relationship with your king, trusting him and following him. Being changed by him through the power of the gospel, not just cleaning up your own life. That's why we sang the song, yet not I, but Christ in me. It is our king that makes the difference. But then knowing this, Jesus reigning on high, and and hopefully we are living in relationship with him, saved through the, the cross and the resurrection. Now, this defines us. We have a role now. We are our king's ambassadors in this world. And so as we look up and we trust in King Jesus, we now need to look around and realize that there is a world that needs Jesus Christ. They need to know him. And we have a role. We have been chosen by God. Every child of God who has been saved by Jesus Christ, we have a role to go into this world. And so as we talk about the ascension, do you know what Jesus said right before he ascended into heaven? Turn to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Right before he ascends into heaven, he gives us our marching orders. These are instructions he left the disciples, but they apply to all of us. And and listen to the language that links this with the power and authority of our King Jesus. Listen to that language. Verse 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Do you see where he starts? This is not Jesus going, well, I did my part. Now you go do yours. This is Jesus saying, now understand, I have all authority. I am your king, Jesus, not me. And then look at what he says at the end. He's going to give them the marching orders. And at the end he says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is mind-blowing, life-changing, church-shaping. Jesus Christ, who has all authority, is with us. As a church, as Christians throughout the ages, he who has all authority and is reigning on high is with us as we carry out our mission in this world. Do you know what that means? Success is certain. Success is certain. And it's not because of us. It's all because of Jesus. Because, man, if the mission depended on us, let's be honest, the world's in big trouble. But the mission depends on Jesus Christ. But we are his instruments. We are his tools that he picks up like a, like a carpenter. When he's ready to hammer in a nail, he picks up one of us or a church and he says, okay, here's how I'm going to use you right now. And what we have to trust is that the one who has all authority is the one who is guiding us and directing us and he is with us. How many times do you get in a situation at work or with friends And the subject of religion or Jesus comes up and and you just get terrified. What if I say the wrong thing? Who am I to be preaching this or to be teaching them? I'm a mess. And if they only knew, why would they listen to me? How many times do we feel that way? What if in that moment we said, my king has all authority and he has promised to be with me even now? Wouldn't that change the situation? The victory is already secured. Our job is to trust our King who reigns on high and simply to point others to Him. I think one of the greatest examples of evangelism that that helps me to understand it better is those that are really into sports. Your team does well or your team does poorly over the weekend. Nobody's got to sit you down to train you how to talk about your team. And guaranteed, if you're a real fan, everybody's going to hear about it. Whether they want to or not. Just telling you, if the 49ers don't win today, you're going to want to stay away from my wife. (laughs) Friendly warning. She's much more of a fan of football than I am. Fun facts. But nobody has to tell you why. Because you're excited about it. and Because you just want to tell people. And really, do you care if they like your team or not? No. You just want to tell them. Now, I hope we care about whether or not people want to accept Jesus. But if we could stop thinking that it's all on our shoulders to make that happen and start remembering that our king reigns on high and he has all power and authority over that person's life and our conversation and my lips and my thoughts, all I have to do is tell them about Jesus. All we have to do is be so excited ourselves about Jesus that it just pours out of us. We need to go and tell others about Jesus Christ. This one who has all authority in our lives and who can have all authority in their lives and they can trust as well. And part of the command then is to go, and maybe you've heard a better translation is is more like as you are going. It assumes along the way of our lives, whether it's on the mission field or to work or to your neighbor's house, as you are going, We are to tell others about Jesus Christ. And look at how he says this. He says, make disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That's really the marching orders right there. The rest of it explains what he means by that. But listen to why he's talking about disciples. Why does he use that word, make disciples? Why doesn't he say, go make people that accept me as their Lord and Savior? Why doesn't he say, go make people that pray a prayer to accept me? Why doesn't he say, go make people that will come to church? Why doesn't he say, go make better people out in the world? Why does he say, make disciples? It's a word that meant so much to them, and I'm not sure it means quite as much to us today. To be a disciple, you have to be a learner and a follower. I talked about this with the youth group on Friday night. We were looking at John chapter 1. So if it sounds familiar to some of the kids, that's why. Kids, students, (laughs) that's why. A learner and a follower. A, A disciple is a learner who follows and a follower who learns. If you are just a learner, then you're just really a student. A student can sit there and absorb information and regurgitate it for a test and then move on like it just didn't matter at all. Oh, I learned. Some of us come to church that way. Somebody said you should be here. Somebody said you should absorb this information. It's good stuff, makes you a good person. Okay, I'm going to try to sort of kind of listen to the pastor, kind of maybe show up to, you, or to Sunday school and maybe to a small group. I'm just going to learn. But a follower has to put into practice what they're learning. It changes their life. But also, we can't just be a follower. See, sometimes people say, Oh, well, I'm very religious. I'm a very spiritual person. I, I think about God and I think about Jesus and I have very good intentions, but they never learn who Jesus is. They don't go to Scripture and say, Who does God say He is? So many well-meaning religious people today stop with the question, who do I think God is? Well, the God I worship is different than yours. See, when you come to Scripture, that statement gets blown out of the water because there is only one true God. There's a famous statement, either worship and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, or we remove him from the table completely as an option of someone to trust in. He is not one among other saviors or other gods. He is the one true Savior. We want followers who are learners, learners who are followers. And let me add one more category that I think is a little more applicable to us today. When he says make disciples, one of the things we need to hear is he's not saying make spectators. So much of what happens all too often, and and I think I'm preaching to the choir here. I think for the most part, this doesn't apply to anybody here, maybe. But we look at church as a spectator sport. And the job of being spiritual and religious is, is like from here this way. It's the job of the praise team to be spiritual and religious, and it's the job of the congregation to watch and critique. It's the job of the pastor to say spiritual, religious things. And it's the job of the congregation to be entertained and critique. Jesus doesn't say, go make spectators. He says, go make disciples. And it's one of the things I love about this church. We take discipleship seriously. We encourage people, don't just show up to worship service. Go to Sunday, get involved in a small group, dig into your Bible throughout the week on your own. Be a disciple, a follower who learns and a learner who follows. This is the first part of our mission statement as a church. We exist to make and become fully devoted followers of Christ. That's kind of how we're stating discipleship. We want to help people to learn and follow Jesus Christ, to accept the gospel and then to keep going deeper. And we want to go out as we share about Jesus and invite people to be learners who follow disciples of Jesus Christ. Everything else that Jesus says explains what he means by that. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. This was this outward sign that they are not who they were. They have entered into a new relationship, like a new birth. We use that word as well. And so baptism was the public testimony of, I am not who I was. I am now a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is why baptism is important. Jesus Christ said it's part of our mission. It's an inherent part. If you have not been baptized and you call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to hear the words of the one who you follow who says, baptizing them. It is an act of obedience. And I'll tell you from one who has participated in baptisms, witnessed many baptisms, I am always amazed at how God uses someone else's baptism in someone else's life to challenge them to go deeper in their relationship with Christ. So he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. When are you done learning Jesus Christ? When are you done being a disciple and like graduating and you've learned everything? When you have learned everything that Jesus has commanded. I've been in ministry now for over 20 years. I'm not there yet. I went to four years of Bible school, three and a half bishop seminary or something. Not there yet. I read and study and teach and preach the Bible every single day. I'm not there yet. And I don't think we will until Jesus Christ comes back. And even then, I think we'll have all eternity to learn more. To go deeper in our relationship with Christ. This is why, as a church, we dig into this book right here, unapologetically. I would rather have you know this right here than my thoughts on how you should live your life. Because this is learning what Christ taught. And this is what we were commanded to teach and to preach. It's why we take it serious in Sunday school and Bible studies. It's why we spend so much time in the Word of God. These are our marching orders. And as we keep our sights on Jesus reigning on high, we need them to look out and go and make disciples. If you're here and you've never accepted Jesus. I want you to think, and, and maybe you don't know. Maybe you're not really sure. Like you've participated in churches over the years. You've always had kind of good thoughts about Christ. or You were brought up in a church. I want you to think, are, are you maybe maybe one of those that's just a student? Like you've learned. When I was a kid, I was in Bible quizzing. I could recite books of the Bible, long passages of Matthew like this. I had Matthew chapters 1 through 12 memorized, word perfect. And if you said a chapter and a verse, I could have sped it back to you. I don't know that I was a Christian at that time. It was a competition for me. Please understand, I can't do that now. It's gone. Maybe the first 10 verses of the genealogy, which has not been all that helpful in my life. Occasionally in sermons. It's possible to be a student without actually being a disciple. Maybe you would count yourself as a follower. Maybe you're very deeply spiritual and you have your ideas about what it means to follow Jesus or just to follow God or follow religion and improve yourself. Today I want you to hear the truth from the Word of God. There is a king who died in our place on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended to the throne room of heaven and reigned on the throne of heaven over everything in this world, including your ideas and opinions. He is greater than them. And he calls us to be his disciples, to give up our lives, give up the way we're going and turn and follow him. I want to challenge you That is the best and greatest choice you will ever make in your life. And it will change everything else in your life. Not right away. Sometimes not the things you want to change right away. But over time, looking up and trusting that Jesus reigns on high and that he has saved you will work itself out in your life as you follow him and you learn and you grow and you are his disciple. For those of you that are here, that are my brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to encourage you and challenge you look up. Your Savior reigns right now over everything that worries you, He is greater than those things. Don't settle for less than trusting in King Jesus. Don't allow yourself to think that you have more authority or more control or that anything else in this world does. And then, as you are going, look around you. These people need to meet your king. And God has sent you as his ambassador to tell them about it to make disciples, to open up the word together and say, man, I don't have all the answers, but let's dig into the word together. The success of our mission as a church, which is what the rest of the New Testament is about, depends on the authority of our king who reigns and rules on high forever and ever. And one day he is coming back and he will rule here, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he truly is Lord of lords and King of kings. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for all too often having too small a picture of Jesus and his power and his authority. Forgive us in the moments of worry and struggles for forgetting that you reign on your throne forever and ever. And God, I pray there are some people here and I don't want them to hear this as, as a message of guilt. I want them to hear this as a message of encouragement. That you are there. That you are with them and you are in control and you love them more than they can possibly imagine. You have done everything necessary and possible for them to be saved from their sins and live in a relationship to live in your kingdom. And the time between now and when Christ comes back is not a time of ultimate chaos. It is a time that you are ruling from heaven, and one day you will come back and rule here forever and ever. God, may we live in that truth now. May we be bold in our witness. May we be so excited about our relationship with Jesus Christ that it just pours out of us. May the way we trust you and hold on to hope in difficult situation be an example to others. And I pray, Father, may we understand as individuals and as a church, may we understand and take seriously what it means to make disciples. Thank you, Jesus, that you reign on high. Help us to trust in you more and more. In your name we pray, amen.